Thank you, Nick. Thank you for that uh, personal and heartfelt testimony of the work of God in a life. Um, I, too, trusted my Savior when I was eight years old, not six, I was eight. I was at a Bible camp, and I heard, um, I heard about something similar to what Nick mentioned. I heard about the mercy of God. I didn't really understand much about mercy then, and I'm not sure I understand much about mercy today. But I find that, that, that God actually likes mercy to triumph, to beat judgment. Isn't that an amazing phenomenon? Have you, anybody, anybody of you ever been cut off on the highway? Anybody? Yeah, what do you want to do? Run them over! I mean, you just... Maybe not on the outside, but on the inside. You want no mercy, do you? You want this man to pay or woman to pay for what you just cut you off. You just, ah! But you know what? In the Bible, God says that mercy triumphs, wins over judgment all the time. In fact, in the book of Micah, you don't have to turn there if you don't, uh, you don't have to turn there this evening. But um, in the book of Micah, it says that God delights in showing mercy. What do you delight in? Nature? Delight in the beauty of, of this valley? You delight in the success of your business? Do you delight in vacations? Maybe you delight in simple things like a really good steak, red beef in the teeth, right? I do. But God has something he delights in. And it's intangible. What he delights in is showing mercy. And I would submit to you, every soul, either here or in, in earshot of this meeting, needs one thing in your life. At some point in your life, you need mercy. And I'm here to tell you tonight, you need the mercy of God. You see, God had a way of expressing himself through... Um, through uh, passing in time and dimension of this world. And one of the things God expressed himself, one of the ways he expressed himself was in this person named Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard of him and think of him as uh, the story of Christmas or the reason for Easter. It's not the Easter bunny, it's actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, but one of the things that happened there, God expressed himself, was, was what I want to just open with. It's where Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, met a leper. Now, this leper was no ordinary leper. He was a leper that was, it says, full of leprosy. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody with a disease that is, um, uh, oh, we say, full, uh, fulminant. It's it's. It's, it's corroding and corrupting every organ in the body. Well, leprosy had a way of corrupting and corroding the most visible organ in the body called the skin. It had a way of, of if it's true, truly Hansen's disease, it had a way of, of uh, taking your, your appendages, your fingers, and making them nubs, changing the contour and the appearance of your face. You would have insensate skin and and some patients would lose limbs 
It was one day Jesus was walking on the planet and this man full of leprosy came towards him. I always thought he came running. I think he came crawling. And in his state of being absolutely corrupted and corroded by this disease, he was crying out to God, to Jesus Christ. And you know what he said? Have mercy on me. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And in that little story where Jesus Christ stood, as it were, motionless, as this man full of leprosy came to him, and this is unusual because in that culture and in that day, the rabbi could take stones and throw it at the leper to make him run the other direction because it was considered a contagious disease. But in that moment, the Son of God would stand there representing the heart of God in its full dimension as a man totally corrupted by a disease that you could see from a great distance would come to him and he would say to God himself, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And it says in the Word of God in the book of Luke chapter 5 that he reached forth and touched him. Often wondered how Jesus touched the man. I think he touched him this way. I think he put his hands around him and pulled him to himself and he said these words, I am willing. Do you know what that means? Through the person of Jesus Christ, God was speaking. And he was saying something so, so unique and so special. He says, you don't know how willing I am to show you mercy. I'm to, I am so willing to heal you of your leprosy. You don't understand that I live for moments to express mercy. Are you a soul like that tonight? Is your soul so twisted and contorted, so, so messed up? That the only thing you can do is you say, God, if you're really there, I, 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 need, I, I need your mercy. I need your mercy. Because I think that leper was probably crying. And I wonder, as the Son of God held that man in his arms, if he himself perhaps shed a tear. For the heart of God pulsates, drips with mercy. Tonight, I would like to tell you about a marriage in which mercy was expressed. If you have your Bibles, it comes to you from the pages of 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's a unique marriage, and it goes along with the theme of our morning sessions where we're speaking of marriage. The marriage was between a man named Nabal and a woman named Abigail. Nabal's name means fool, when you like that as a name, men. Hey, you idiot, come here. Kind of from New York, I guess. Can you imagine that? Hey, you fool, come over here. Now, usually in the Bible, when names are used of this na- in this manner, it really bespeaks of their character. And as we'll learn in the story, you'll see his foolish character. But his wife's name was Abigail, which is a combination of two names, sort of a compound-like idea, and it's sort of the idea of joy or dance and father. Or you could say the joy of of a father. When my wife was a young lady, a young girl, 
Her parents used to say she was one of life's little pleasures. I'm very glad I married her. I inherited that, that life's little pleasure, right? You see, I have often wonder if Abigail was like that in her countenance and her demeanor and the way she conducted herself. And as we'll see tonight in this description of this marriage where mercy is shown, she portrays perfect joy of a father. Now, this story, to set, it, to set it well, we're going to try to divide it up into sections. And the sections will be quite simple. There is a reputation in this marriage, a reputation specifically of Nabal. There is a, there is a question that's asked, a question by the king-to-be, the king-in-waiting, David. There is an action that results both by Nabal and by David. And then there's an intervention by Abigail. So we're going to divide it up in sections tonight just so that we don't lose track and lose our way. And it will be, of course, reputation. It will be question. It will be action. And it will be intervention. And so we'll try to follow that outline very, very cautiously this evening. So let's look at the Word of God. If you have it, I'll just read part of it. And sometimes I'll describe it. And then we'll move through the text carefully. It goes like this. Now there was a man in Moen whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 and goats. And he was, he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh. And evil in his doings, he was of the house of Caleb. I would love to go into a few things about Caleb. But suffice to say, Caleb is the Caleb that had a tremendous reputation in the time of Joshua, who selected as as his inheritance the city of Hebron so that he could take out the giants and show a generation preceding him how the God that would have, won, would have won the battle with their parents was the same God that would win the battle with him. Nabal had a tremendous heritage in terms of his spiritual heritage. He was a, he was a successful businessman. It says he, he was rich and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 other animals. He was, he was quite wealthy. His entire ranching operation involved multitude of servants, as we will see. And it says in his, as part of his reputation that he was harsh and evil in his doings. Do you think he was only harsh and evil in business? I can tell you that it is rare that a man will only be harsh and evil in his business and not be that way to his family, to his wife. Many of you sitting here tonight will understand the kind of, kind of harshness that can occur between a husband and wife, between a husband to his wife, and he can be harsh. And he can be evil in his doings. He can be rude. He can be inconsiderate. He can be downright cutting. Downright evil. I think Nabal was of this character. And I do not think for a moment that he was only this way in his business. I think he was this way in every facet of his life. It's hard to contain sin, isn't it? And so Nabal was successful. He was successful under the the sovereign hand of God. How do I know that? Well, you'll find out in the next section of this particular uh, discussion, which is our paragraph called The Question. 
Oh, by the way, did you notice Abigail's reputation? She, of course, was of good understanding. It means he married up. She's smarter, right? What's the opposite of good understanding? Foolish. What was his name? Foolish. He married up. Many of you women have married up. No, wait. Many of you men. <laughs> I said that backwards. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hate it when I do that. <sighs> All right. Wait a minute. I, mean, I got I to get back. Okay, I'm better now. Many of you men have married up. It also says that she was beautiful. Nabal, you won. I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you did it. Even the dumb make good, good decisions once in a while, right? Now, the question that is posed is from David. Now, in order for you to understand the question, I must, uh, I must explain the culture. In that day, in this particular time of history, what was happening was King Saul was going out. And a new king named David was coming in. And it wasn't one of those smooth transitions because King Saul had a mission. He was going to exterminate David so that the house of Saul could continue on the kingly throne. But God had already said that wasn't going to happen. So King Saul was obviously rebelling against God. Therefore, David was a fugitive waiting for God to remove Saul so that David could be king. This was the the setting of the story. Now, while David was a fugitive, he would make it his business to travel around and to help uh, the ranchers and the herdsmen. And he would help take care of their uh, servants as they had the flocks on the rolling hills in the southern area of that uh, country near Bethlehem and south of there and Carmel and Moan. And David would take his band of men and he would travel from ranch to ranch and provide, provide security, security forces for them so that uh, robbers and thieves would not come in and kill the shepherds and steal the sheep. They would be there as a, a wall of protection, both day and night. This is what David was doing as a fugitive. Saul, who was king, did not have this in his mind to protect his people. He had in his mind only one thing, and that was to take the best of his forces to try to hunt down David. David, on the other hand, the, uh, the king-to-be, the king-in-waiting, was now taking care of the people as a king should. And it directly benefited Nabal. Because it's this time of year that Nabal was going to gather all of his flocks and herds together, and they were going to shear the sheep, that is, they were going to harvest the wool from the animals, which was a, a tremendous time of, of celebration. We went through the growing season, the winter season, the growing season, the spring season. Now we finally come to a point where these animals that we labored and lost sleep, uh, lost sleep over throughout the winter months are now finally to this great stature. And we can, we can harvest, if I, if I may, their, their wool and we can have a, a uh, windfall of product, a windfall of, of, of riches. We can make our investment turn over for us. And this was the time of year. It was the time of sheep shearing. It's a big event in that culture. 
was not just gathering all the animals, and you can imagine some one to 3,000, 4,000 animals together, and all the herdsmen and their families are all gathered around. It was celebratory, and they would take animals and prepare them and have huge feasts, much food, and much celebration, dancing and joy as they were able to, to finally bring in the product of all of their sweat and tears in the last year. So, David asks a question. We won't read this section for the sake of time, but what David does is he sends some messengers, sends some of his men to Nabal. And he says, David, your servant, was providing protection for you, for your men, while they were taking care of the sheep. I neither harmed them nor took anything from them. Ask your own shepherds, they will tell you. What I'd like to ask you is that for our services during this time of your abundance, would you just give us the leftovers? Please, whatever comes into your hand, would you just allow us, allow us that so that we might feed our men? It's a very polite, a very courteous, and you might add, and a very appropriate request. David had provided work without any contract, without any obligation, but yet he had the he had the appropriate uh, manner to come to Nabal and, and ask him of, of such provisions. It, was, it would be definitely, definitely appropriate. It would be, in our culture, perhaps giving a tip in the right manner to the servant that served you at your table, right? It would be that kind of thing. Now, Nabal, this is how he acts. I'd like you to see this. You read in your Bibles, you don't have to turn to it, I'll read it for you. Verse 9, Nabal speaks. And he said, now listen, I'm going to try to, I don't know, act it out. It goes like this. Who is this David? That's what he says. Who is this David? And who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days. Each uh, that break away, each from his own master. How do I not know you're one of them? That's what he's saying. He says this, Shall I then take my bread? Shall I then take my water? Shall I take my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from. Now I dramatize that on purpose. Why did I do that? Because I'm a frust- frustrated actor. No, that's not it. I did that so you would understand with emphasis what Nabal was doing. He was saying, wait a minute. I'm not going to give anything to you, David. These are my sheep, my people, my produce, my food, my water. Nabal, stop, stop. Just stop for a minute. Do you not know that everything you are celebrating at this moment and this period of time with all of your families who helped you get all of this wealth, that David helped you get here? David was responsible. If he had not provided the protection of his security force during those months while they were, your shepherds were on the hills, you might not have any sheep tonight. You might not have any water tonight. You might not have any, she- uh, any food tonight. Your very celebration was dependent on his protection. Now I want to just stop for a moment. Many of us treat life just like that. 
we step into life like you're enjoying today, and we, we just, just sort of gather off the grocery store of heaven things that we want and things that we enjoy. Some of you have enjoyed, I can see, the beauty of what it is to have children, to watch little Gracie and others of such, of such caliber uh, uh, grow up in front of you, and you enjoy the family dynamic. Did you know it was God who came up with the family idea? He even says so in Ephesians. Did you know that, that you enjoy, perhaps like I today, various sights of, of of, of the natural realm around us, and we take it all in, and there's not a single one of us that don't, does not come into the valley, and we look at the majestic granite, and we just go, wow. And some of us will go out and, 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 and look up with the bears, and look up at the sky, and see the stars and the galaxies above with the naked eye, and we just enjoy the thrill of all the beauty around us. And some of us have enjoyed wealth, that has been given to you by the hand of God. No, and, and yet, yet you would say like the fool, Nabal, this is my stuff. This is my land. This is my country. This is my life. And I'm not going to share it with anyone. And yet God would come to you. God, like David, would come to Nabal. God would come to you and say, now listen, we need to talk about things for a minute. We need to ask some hard questions and we need to see where you're at. And you turn to God and almost a shaking a fist and say, you have no right to ask me these questions. Who are you? And some have done that, both figuratively and literally. Some have shaken your fist at God, although you have enjoyed all the blessings, all the fruitful activities. All the, uh, uh, the wealth and, 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 the, and the prosperity that you have received. You've enjoyed all of that. And you, you're doing it as if you thought you made it on your own. I can tell you that God will show you precisely how you've not made it on your own. For the rich man has said to himself, I will, build, I will knock down my storehouses and I'll build more so that I'll have a life of ease. And the Lord Jesus said, you fool. Tonight, I will require your life from you. And who will inherit those things? You should fear the one who has the power to take a life. And that's exactly where many of us lay. We live our existence like that. Existence like that. And as Nick said, you chase after all the empty things. You act foolish. I'm sorry to say it so bluntly, but the fool is the fool who sees God as so distant and removed from his life and that everything that you have at your hands was been, has been crafted by your own muscle. Oh, I tell you, that's foolish thinking. And God has every right to ask the question of you, what will you do when you face me and I ask you the hard question of why I should let you into heaven? What will you say then? You see, everything that you have has been because I've given it to you. That's what God is saying. Many of us have lived just like that. Maybe that's you tonight. I want you to know that's the, that's the heart of a fool. I don't mean that to insult you. I mean that to be truthful. Well, David reacts. He gets all uh, quite upset about this. And he goes back, his men come back and report to him what Nabal said. And Nabal, uh, uh, David says to his men, put your sword, every man, put your sword on tonight. Later on, he says, there's not going to be a single male standing in Nabal's camp tonight. He's going to take appropriate vengeance. 
Let me tell you something. God has a judgment that is appropriate for a fool's attitude. God has an an appropriate judgment which requires the life of the one who has been foolish. God would, I would say to you that that is absolutely within his domain to execute capital punishment against those who have failed to acknowledge his blessed hand. That's that's his right. And that judgment will come. It says that that if if, if you fail to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're condemned already. He says that you're receiving the appropriate judgment for your attitude towards God. You need mercy, believe it or not. You need mercy that can only come from one source. In our story tonight, it actually comes from his wife, Abigail. Because the servants of of Nabal heard what David was going to do. And they go to Abigail, and this, if you're following along, this is in, in verse 14, that one of the young men came and told Abigail what had happened and that David was upset and that he was going to bring his entire 400-odd men to the, to the camp and he was going to, to kill them all. And the servants asked Abigail to intervene. See, so there was... Of course, reputation, there was question, there was action, and now there's intervention. And they said to Abigail, Abigail, our, ma'am, we, we have this problem and our, our master has acted foolishly and has angered David and David's coming and he's going to kill us all. What can we do? And she immediately jumps into action. And she prepares a very large gift. You can read it with me if you have your Bibles. It says, it says in verse 18, that Abigail made haste and made 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep already dressed, five uh, seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkeys. And she said to her servants, now you go on before me and I'll come behind you. She's a very smart, wise woman that she's true to her name, true to her reputation. And she sends this, this package of, of food and, and drink and, and refreshment ahead to meet David, who's now riding down the valley with vengeance and blood in his eyes. And he suddenly is arrested by this, by this huge gift that comes towards him. And Abigail, following behind, when she sees David... It says in the Bible, and you can read it here in verse 23, when she sees David, she dismounts quickly. And look at what she does. She fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. And what does she say? Do you you read it? It says this, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. I want you to envision it. You've got this lady, the gift ahead, David coming with appropriate vengeance as he insulted, as he was insulted by this foolish man. She married to this foolish man, comes up, she sees David, she quickly gets down, she gets on her face, she's down on the ground, and as she's down on the ground, what do you think's exposed? Her neck. I can I can imagine her saying, Take this cold steel of your sword and put it right here for me. On me, let this sin be. Treat me like Nabal. 
do that to me. You know what we call that? That's mercy. Think about it, ladies. A chance to get rid of this this irritating husband. I would have been silent. Oh, yeah, he's that way. That's what I would have done. I mean, i got to admit, it was not the top ten pick, huh? Yes, my husband. No. She puts her life in harm's way for a man that does not deserve it. And she does so by letting herself be counted as the one who committed this terrible insult to David. On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Take the cold steel of your blade and lay it across my veins. It doesn't say that, but that's the idea. Let my head roll tonight, not his. Wow, that's mercy. Do you hear that? That's dripping with mercy. The one who does not deserve a single thing gets all the blessings by the one who really should never put interpose herself in that way. Let me tell you something. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. The Lord Jesus Christ enters into the human frame of flesh and bone. And then early in his earthly ministry, he meets that leper and he says, with, I believe, such great passion and such great emphasis, I am so willing. Oh, I'm so willing. I'm so willing to make you clean. And what he's really saying is, I'm so willing to let your iniquities on me be. And that's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ was about. When he died on the cross, he was, he was echoing this one monumental theme. On me, let their iniquities be. Let their sins fall on me. Treat me like the fool. Treat me like the sinner. Treat me like the criminal. And when that happens, God is showing you mercy. The heart of God that longs to show, to find opportunities for mercy, found the supreme, uh, the supreme opportunity of all human existence to show mercy. It was the moment when the Savior, the Son of God, would put himself in a way and let the wrath, the judgment, the vengeful hand of God, which should have fallen on me, the fool, to fall on his Son, to fall on his back, to be judged as the sinner when it was my sin. That, my friends, that is the best, most dramatic, most stupendous exercise of mercy this world has ever known. And I want you to know something. God would give you that mercy tonight. God would extend that mercy to your very soul tonight because I am very sure there's not a single one of us in this room, in this open air, which, could not, which would not agree with me. Oh, I need mercy. Because there have been times and manners in which I have been foolish and worse than that, I don't even recognize all the moments of time in which I have been foolish and arrogant both to my wife, both to my children, and to God in heaven. I haven't even acknowledged that he exists. How arrogant have I been and how foolish have I been. And God would come after you appropriately so with vengeance. And all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, someone would jump in the way. His name is Jesus Christ. 
And he would expose himself in a manner in which all the storms of a vengeful, a vengeful violent uh, thundercloud would just be absorbed by him. And you would stand in his shadow so that not a single drop of judgment would ever touch you. That's mercy. And I want to ask you, how long, how long will you reject the mercy of God? Isn't it time? with a history of perhaps failure and defeat, of marriages that have been ripped apart and children that are estranged and jobs that you've lost because of an arrogant, prideful spirit or a jealous soul or a bitter heart. It doesn't matter what sin it is. It's just all corrosive like leprosy. Isn't it time that you actually receive the mercy of God given through Jesus Christ, who would stand in the gap, as Nick said, And take the blows that a sinner deserves because he would treat, he would, uh, he would give himself to be treated as you, the sinner. So that you would, you would be able to drink from the richest of all drink called the mercy of God. So that God would give you forgiveness of your sins. God would give you forgiveness of your iniquities, of your transgressions, of your lawlessness, of your rebelliousness. God would give you a sending away, separating you from your crimes as far as the east is from the west. Isn't it time to receive the mercy of God? Which one of us would not say we would need mercy in our lives? That at some point, somehow, some way, we're undone. We can't fix it. This is this moment. You can't fix it. Our God in heaven has fixed it for you. So much so that he took his son and he raised him from the dead. Sounds like a fantasy, but no, it's a reality. Raised him from the dead to actually show that all that he said would happen in terms of judging him and you getting forgiveness and mercy really is justified, really is truly the, 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 the moment of reality. It's not just a fairy tale. It's, it has substance, proof, evidence, so that you can stand before a holy God who would have a vengeful hand, but instead would replace it by mercy. And here's his theme. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's Nick's testimony. That's my testimony. I am the recipient of the mercy of God. Will you be that tonight? Will you be? Maybe we could just have a word of prayer together. There's nothing special that must be done. There's no walking forward. There's no... There's no sort of clapping of hands. There's, there's nothing special. I tell you what this is. It's a moment of decision that usually occurs between you, your soul, your mind, your heart, and the God of the Bible. That's all that is. It's something that perhaps we would say is intangible, invisible. But don't, rem- but don't think that it's fake. It's real. That's what this God of the Bible is about. I would invite you to receive his mercy. For it says in the word of God, for those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. And maybe if you're one of those 
you would follow somehow perhaps something similar to what I might pray this evening. But let it be your own, not mine. Father, tonight we thank you that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he showed us mercy. That he was the one who was standing there reaching out, holding the leper's face. He was the one at the cross absorbing the blows a leper deserves. He was the one that you judged in my place like Abigail was pleading to be done to her for her foolish husband. How many of us have been like Nabal? Oh, Father, if there are here tonight, those here tonight who need your mercy by trusting in Jesus Christ, I pray they would. Perhaps, Father, they would say to you, Oh, God, I need your mercy. My life is in shambles. There's so much evidence of my poor management and decisions. I've destroyed lives. I've hurt loved ones, ones I can't even go back to. I've, I've made a mess of my life. Oh, God, I need your mercy. It's not just a mercy of what I've done wrong, God. It's a mercy that I need from your judgment of my, my sin. Would you give me your mercy through Jesus Christ? I would like to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.